Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Hello. I'm not using our usual intro until 3 o'clock, I think, today, because we're starting a little bit early. And I want to thank uh, Dave, Bal- Dave Balfour. Dave Richards, our uh, very distinguished station manager here at WON uh, 1240 and uh, AM and 99.5 FM for uh, helping us out here today. Uh, ben is not able to be with us. He, uh, when we had the schedule change today, he had something that he could not uh, forego. So uh, it looks like I'm um, I'm here uh, more or less pretty much by myself. Uh, we have a stable of guest co-hosts uh, uh, for such emergencies. However, none of them felt quite up to this subject, and the subject today is eternal life. Uh, so it, it sounds like a pleasant subject, uh, but you may be very surprised at some of the uh, the insights that uh, we've uncovered and, and will present today. So before we wait for the three o'clock hour, which is when uh, everyone will be will be tuning in, uh, we'll I suppose we can uh, review some of the cases that have been going on uh, that people are very curious about, uh, and what has the COVID nineteen situation done to these in the sense of our being able to work them. Uh, probably our most active case uh, has been the uh, flap area, as we call it, known as the Pennsylvania Triangle. Uh, centered in the Dubois area, we have now pushed it out to about 125 square miles. Uh, it's a new case for us. We've only been working on it since 2016. And assisting us in it are not only people who live in the area, who are some of the best people in the world I've ever met, uh, but certainly Ben. Uh, we've had uh, Alexander Petikoff, a well-known filmmaker and adventurer, who's been working with us on it. Uh, Chuck Credo from uh, Elliott, Maine, who comes with us uh, most trips and is an invaluable uh, contributor to that project. And uh, we have a few others as well, including uh, Lori Greer, our casting producer, uh, Andrew Vranis, our research assistant, and um, also, uh, certainly not last but not least, uh, the great Shane Searway, who is a very, very familiar name to people on the show and a frequent co-host, certainly, for our open line shows. So that area has been, uh, we are told, uh, relatively quiet. We always go down in May uh, to western Pennsylvania to see this this area where there are Bigfoot sightings, UFOs almost on a nightly basis, even even during the day, uh, certainly a ghostly phenomena, as it's been known, and a number of other things that uh, really keep us hopping down there. Now, Shane and I, uh, in 2016, both had Bigfoot encounters, much to my shock. That had never happened to me before. Uh, we've had photographs of UFOs, things of this kind. And we have had neighborhood meetings at least once a year there. And these have involved so many people now that as of the last one in 2019, we had to move to a restaurant. And that was full. And uh, we, we were able to uh, interview people on camera, uh, certainly Alexander uh, with his uh, film uh, uh, expertise and uh, Chuck with his uh, amazing abilities as, a, as an interviewer, were able to get, in one case, three generations of a family uh, that had had Bigfoot experiences and things of this kind over many years, uh, not two miles from where that we were having the meeting and where it was being recorded. Uh, so it's, it's a very, very interesting case. Uh, we have... Um, one uh, untied knot down there, there was uh, a little girl who, uh, she's a little bit older now, but she had a, a very terrifying Bigfoot experience in broad daylight, and she was so frightened that, that she has never talked to us. Maybe it's these you know weird bearded guys from New England, I don't know, who look like Bigfoot themselves, but uh, we hope at some point uh, to get her, her full story other than from her parents. So uh, it's a very active case. Uh, we have not been able to get down there in 2020 because of everything that's going on. That's most unfortunate, but we're keeping tabs on it. Uh, as for the uh, case closer to uh, our broadcast home here, uh, we have the uh, Connecticut, the Litchfield Triangle case, as we've called it, which is uh, a case Ben and I have been working on since 2005. Uh, we do spend years on cases simply because we've got, there's so much to them. And when you look outside the quote-unquote haunted house or an area, you you very often find that other houses in the area are having problems, or you find that uh, areas uh, that are outside are having issues. Uh, this particular case is quite remarkable because there, there are uh, phenomena that really don't even have names yet that are occurring. Uh, the entire family in the, the, the first house we began 
uh, with in Torrington, Connecticut in 2005, uh, we're seeing strange box-like figures dancing by the windows outside, sometimes in broad daylight. They would see legs hanging from the ceiling, walking as if on a surface that is not there in our world. And our whole approach to this is that it has nothing to do with dead people in any classic sense of the word, but it has to do with the parallel worlds we often talk about. And I think our good friend Dave uh, has been uh, trying to uh, kind of, uh, as with many people, trying to get their minds around that for many years, but uh, hopefully that uh, will not be too difficult to understand once people, uh, we find people recognize these ideas once they think about them enough. But in any case, the Connecticut case is very active. One of the most uh, recent uh, phenomena along with, uh, there aren't too many Bigfoot sightings, there are some, uh, but lots of UFOs. Uh, lots of uh, ghostly phenomena, parasitical phenomena, things of that kind. Time slips uh, are, are really uh, prominent there. Our, our very good friend, the astronomer Mark D'Antonio, who was an occasional co-host of the show and a frequent guest, uh, was uh, taught, grew up in that area and spoke about being a young lad uh, driving around with his dad and stopped at the end of a street where there were some very strange-looking fire engines and the, the firefighters looked like they were wearing old uniforms or older uniforms. And there was a police officer who looked like he just stepped out of the 1950s. And he said, sir, you can't go this way. You'll have to turn around and go somewhere else. So the, rather confusedly, they, they turned around and went somewhere else. But the father decided this is really strange. He didn't see any sort of emergency, no fire or anything. He turned around uh, in about five minutes and went back and nobody was there. So this is the sort of thing that's going on. We believe that, they, that it is a flap area. You've got overlapping worlds, time slips, things of this, of this kind. And again, it's a phenomenon for which there is uh, just about no explanation so far, except for that. Most recently, and this is only a few weeks ago, the uh, the lady who uh, is in the house... Uh, so, okay, are we... It's 3 o'clock. Oh, 3 o'clock, okay, well... Okay. Thank you, Mr. Producer. We will get on with our show then uh, in the official manner. So this is show 856. It's August 9th, 2020. And our questions to start us off today, once you are born, do you remain you forever? What is forever? Is there everlasting life? And what is it? Well, again, welcome to the 856th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I'm Paul. And those eternal questions uh, are posed because we have a very interesting subject today. Uh, ben, unfortunately, because of our schedule change, uh, was not able to uh, be with us today. And none of our co-hosts, uh, we have about seven of them uh, lined up sort of to, to fill in for one of us if we can't be here or to help out, uh, felt up to this subject. And uh, they tended to think it was uh, better for me to handle it myself. I, I have no intention of droning on for an hour, so please call in if you can uh, with your questions. Uh, but I studied in the seminary for many years, and they assume this is a religious subject. It may be. It may not be. We'll take a look at that. Anyway, we do welcome your calls today. Uh, it's 401-766-1240 from anywhere, or email me. Uh, it's paul at behindtheparanormal.com. I'll try to keep up with it uh, there, and I also contact us by Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. <clears throat> In March 2007, I received an email from a man in Wisconsin who had heard me on the radio the night before. And here's what he wrote. 28 years ago, my friend killed himself. On the day of his funeral, he came to me in a dream and told me that he was going to have to spend a long time in purgatory because God was mad at him. He and I were not Catholic. This really shook me up. So I called a minister I knew and told him what happened. He said that a woman had just called him with the same story about the same person. I am now a Catholic. All right, now, now that kind of hit me, and uh, there's a lot of stuff about suicide, and we've had shows on that that's really strange and um, perhaps unexpected. But uh, the idea of purgatory, for anyone who doesn't know, is a Roman Catholic concept that if you're not quite bad enough to go to hell or not quite good enough to go to heaven when you die, you go to this purgative state, a purgatory, hence the name, to be purged, uh, then you can go to heaven. Again, I think, personally, I think that that uh, is a uh, sort of a fulfillment of a desire in the Western mind to pigeonhole everything and to come up with categories. And I, I don't know, I just don't think it, it, uh, it really measures up. As a matter of fact, my first case 
1970 through through 1972, uh, I, I was studying for the priesthood, and I went out and I decided, well, maybe ghosts are souls in purgatory, so-called earthbound spirits. Well, I didn't find anything like that to be the case. I didn't even find them to be dead at all once I got into the case, but that's another story. So anyway, to even begin to deal with the notion of eternal life and afterlife, survival of death, whatever you want to call it, we have to get past the assumptions we're always complaining about on this show. Everybody has assumptions about everything, especially the paranormal. Uh, and I think that they, they just assume that everybody knows what they mean, that they're valid, which I don't think they are. And um, we have to, they just plague our concepts of reality. So let's, as Ben and I always say, define our terms first. What are we talking about? What do we mean? So what do we mean by eternal? The usual assumption is that eternity is linear time, proceeding into a future that never ends. But there's all kinds of experimental and perhaps even archaeological evidence that time is not linear. It doesn't move, objectively speaking, from past to future. In fact, time is the only relative in Einstein's special theory of relativity. Uh, and what he said was as gravity or speed increase, time slows down and time and gravity become measurable at different rates at different locations. So this is relativity. Now the apparent message of science, folklore, and even theology is that time is coexistent. There is no past. There is no future in any objective sense. We just experience sequential events and feelings, and we think it's linear time, because that's the way we experience it. So it looks like eternity might actually be one vast present, and that implies that eternal life exists outside of time. What do we mean by life? Do we have a caller? We did. They hung up. Oh, okay. Couldn't. All right. Well, call back if you want. Four zero one seven six seven six six one two four zero. Anyway, what do we mean by life? To mainstream science, life is simply biological. An entity, creature, thing, or whatever must be able to grow, metabolize, respond to stimuli, adapt, and reproduce. Animate objects as opposed to inanimate objects. But I think we live in a time when the ridiculously narrow scope of that definition is obvious, or should be. Consciousness studies, not biology, seem to point to a more accurate, I think, a lot fuller definition of life, something our remote ancestors seem to know all about. In fact, any real shaman or member of an ancient people will tell you, and I, I remember uh, spending a lot of time with an Australian shaman in 1979, and uh, bef a year before that in Quebec with a, uh, a shaman from the, the uh, Cree tribe, uh, and it's, they just told me the same thing, different sides of the planet. It's, uh, it's, I don't know, it, it's in fact, they, what they essentially say is that everything is conscious. Everything is self-aware and, and aware of others. That's what consciousness supposedly means, self-awareness and awareness of, of others. Uh, animals, they'll tell you, are just as conscious as we are. And matter of fact, we have a whole chapter, chapter 13, in uh, Ben and I uh, put in our, our book, uh, Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong, published by Schiffer in 2017, Animals and the Paranormal. You know, very few people watch their pets. They, they'll, you know, feed them and take them for walks and stuff, whatever. But uh, I was a night news editor at the Providence Journal for, for years in the 1980s up to 1990, and I was home during the day with the boys and the pets. We lived in the woods in Cumberland, Rhode Island, right here in our local listening area. And... Everything I saw and the boys saw, we put in that chapter because you have examples of consciousness to the nth degree with cats, with the wild animals who were their friends, and a number of things that I never expected to see, but quite amazing, so you can check that out. So a shaman will tell you there is no such thing as an inanimate object. Native Americans have told me members of the First Nations, that everything has a spirit, even your car, which I find rather disconcerting, but nevertheless, everything sort of has um, certainly consciousness. Consciousness seems to be life. And I'm thinking of our friend Anthony Peake, who has been on the show a number of times. Uh, he's right with us on this. And life is everywhere, 
and every when in this vast eternal present. Now that's clear in the paranormal if you look at it from what we call the progressive standpoint, no reference to politics intended. But we, we have what we call the progressive approach to the paranormal. It's not about dead people, it's about consciousness and the multiverse, okay? So if there's no time as we understand it, and if everything, not just humans, is alive, what does this do to the whole concept of eternal life? And it prompts the question, do you have to die to obtain eternal life? Maybe not. A few million more questions arise. Now remember there was a Jamaican reggae singer named Peter Tosh, and he once commented, I thought this was hilarious, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. He's right. But is there a heaven? Is there an afterlife? And it's a life after what? And is it really in the sky? Somehow it's always the sky gods, isn't it? You know, he's going to the great bowling alley or the great hot dog restaurant in the sky or whatever. I mean, why the sky? I find that fascinating. So is eternal life a place or is it a state of being? Or is it both? Is it personal or does one size fit all? Does your soul go to heaven or hell? Or is there more to it? What is a soul anyway? And uh, the big issue for me has always been, I don't know, I've never heard anybody else ask, ask this question. We all want to know where we go when we die, but where were we before we were conceived? You know, like, where were you in 1620? Now, a lot of you might say, aha, I got you there, Paul. They point to reincarnation. You might say, sure, I was around in 1620, I was on the Mayflower. But if the, were you on the Mayflower? But if the past as such really doesn't exist, how can reincarnation exist? And if we're wrong, linear time exists and incarnation is true, if we're wrong. Why are there so many old ghosts? Why haven't they reincarnated? So there are a lot of logical inconsistencies that I kind of saw from day one in this whole field. So all this harks back to what we call the island theory. Ben and I have talked about this a lot. We, most would say, uh, or uh, I guess our soul or life is contained within a body, a vessel like we have. Um, it comes into being when conceived. We are unique and alone, the supreme ferocious individual, so to speak, unconnected in any real way with anyone else except by emotions. That's why there's such doubt about the existence of extrasensory ESP or extrasensory perception. There always has been because everything's supposed to be material. How could you have such communication? Uh, the island theory goes on. There's only one of us and all we are is contained within our brain and our physical body. If part of us does survive death, we go on as some sort of a spirit but we somehow remain ourselves after death and forever. That's kind of odd in the history of human spirituality. You know, our precious selves go on forever. You might be in heaven, you might be in hell, but it's still you, and you just and you, you go on in that whatever that form of eternal life may be. Most of the modern concepts of the afterlife, and that includes Christianity and Islam, are based pretty much on the island theory. But But is the island theory correct? Or is there a great deal more to it than that. Now, I want to get into some of the history of belief in eternal life, but we do have a few questions from listeners, and I want to make sure we get to them in this hour before I get uh, carried away here. So, okay, here we have um, Peter in Bogota. Peter is a very faithful listener in South America who writes in every week. Uh, we consider him sort of an honorary co-host, though we've never met him. And Peter writes, uh, some people have the experience of dead family members seeming to appear. I have never had that experience and would like to see my deceased parents again. Have you discovered a technique that works, bearing in mind the problem of parasite imposters? Okay. And now what that last bit means is we're always talking about what folklore refers to as demons. And I was running into them from day one. And in, in the seminary, when I was working in this field, I assumed these were demons in the whatever theological sense of the word uh, they were. But they didn't seem to necessarily uh, obey our theological preconceptions. So we uh, later on came to call, call them uh, parasites because we believe they're life forms that feed upon the negativity that humans produce, and many other forms of life around the multiverse. They seem to be 
multiversal mosquito, sort of in a sense, only with brains. Well, anyway, that, that's what he means by that. Okay, uh, people often ask this, if this uh, thing about people not being dead, but then you see them after their funerals, things of this kind, we think this has much to do with, again, this multiverse idea, that there are parallel worlds with alternate realities, some of which have different laws of physics, and in which, fascinatingly, there are many versions of us. Many physicists would call this good physics. There are many areas of quantum mechanics and the multiple worlds interpretation thereof that are accepted widely today. They may be by physicists. They may have different interpretations of this or that. We've had eminent physicists on this show, such as uh, Dr. Fred Allen Wolf, who pretty much agreed with our interpretation, and also uh, Dr. Amit Goswami, who is um, an eminent physicist and a mystic as well, who has a little bit different interpretation, but says, you know, essentially you've got the multiverse out there. So uh, as a result, uh, we have a very different approach to what this all means. When you're seeing a dead person, they're not dead. You're seeing them across the, uh, what I call it, a veil or the uh, membrane, as a physicist actually call it, uh, of uh, into a parallel world where they never died. So let's leave it that we do have a caller, and let's... Uh, Take the call right now. So welcome to WOON and Behind the Paranormal. Hello. All right. Did we... Okay, well, let's... Uh, why don't we keep trying there? Um, so in any case, uh, one, one of the issues with uh, deceased ancestors here is that uh, you, I've often found that um, I walk into a house, particularly in the early days when I took this approach, and... The, the people would would say, well, this has to be Uncle George or something, you know, who um, died, you know, or something, you know, tw 20 years ago. And they all knew him, but he was long gone. Well, it just didn't feel right to me. And I'd go in and I'd say, I don't believe you're Uncle George. Everything would change. It turned out that it was a parasite. So nothing in the paranormal is what it appears to be. And apparently that's the same case with these ideas of eternal life. Uh, whatever that, if that was Uncle George, uh, which it wasn't, I mean, what's the story on eternal life? Okay. So uh, let's uh, move on to another question. Well, actually, well, just, just to deal with Peter's question a little further, um, I don't have any technique except this, Peter, and I'm sure you've heard us talk about this. When my mother, we don't say died, I don't believe it exists, but translated, it's an old ancient theological terms, term for it, when my mother translated in 2011, uh, we were on the air. We've been on the air since 2008. And a lot of people would wrote in and just called, you know, and, and expressed their sympathy, but said kind of in a very nice way, okay, wise guys, you're always telling everybody else how to handle this. How do you handle it? I said, well, it's not that, that, we, um, that she is still with us, but that we are still with her in many parallel worlds where she never died. And again, this is a hard concept, but a lot of people recognize it when they've had experiences like this, when they've had very close friendships uh, with people who were total strangers about five minutes before, and they just feel a bond. Uh, our explanation for some of that anyway is that they are each other in one form or another in other parts of the multiverse. Now, how can that be? Because one of the principles that's accepted by many physicists is that everything that can possibly exist, has existed, or will exist, does exist somewhere or someone in the multiverse. In other words, uh, at some point in the multiverse, I am our producer. Yeah. And he's me. He's, he's looking at me with a look of disapprobation. Uh, and, uh, or Ben or someone. Uh, when uh, we were speaking, I remember one time uh, I was speaking many years ago at Mount Ida College outside of Boston. And uh, I love speaking at colleges because the students uh, will come up afterwards and they put me in a big armchair, not the students, but the <laughs> organizers. And the students will uh, tell me their stories. Well, on one occasion at Mount Ida, they, they came up, two, two freshman girls, and uh, this is October, so they'd only been in school a few months. And they said, you know, we, we saw each other at registration day and we were sisters from the start. You know, why was that? They hadn't, didn't know each other, not from the same place Nothing in common except being freshmen at Mount Ida College. 
And I said, well, probably you are at some point, and I'd been talking about human relationships in the multiverse, you are each other at some point in the multiverse. They knew precisely what I was talking about. And they went skipping off, uh, very happy and everything else. And then so maybe you just have to uh, have experienced something like this in order to grasp these concepts. So <clears throat> in any case, uh, we, I'm hoping Lynn Nickerson will call. And Lynn is uh, from Kittery, Maine, and she's uh, uh, been on the show many times, particularly on our panels, and is an author and researcher in this, and she has some good questions uh, about this. Uh, so let's, uh, let's go a little bit into the history of eternal life, okay? And we talked about the island theory already. So uh, let's start with those who came before us. What did our ancestors think about eternal life? Well, for one thing, not all of them thought that an afterlife was necessarily eternal. Another thing we noticed is how physical their ideas were, as as opposed to leaving the physical behind and floating around in some spirit world. The notion of life extending beyond death, even temporarily, seems to have been present from the very beginnings of humanity as we know it, and perhaps before that. It's almost as though belief in an afterlife is something every human is kind of born with. The oldest continuous cultures that still exist today include the Aborigines of Australia, the Andaman and Nicobar Islanders of the Indian Ocean region, and the Bushmen of Africa. Now, I haven't spent any time in the Indian Ocean or with the uh, Bushmen, but I have spent time with the Aboriginals. Uh, And uh, all these cultures have a continuous tradition reaching back between 30,000 and as much as 100,000 years. A continuous tradition. I think that deserves some respect. Now, these traditions make no distinction between an afterlife and what we would call heaven. They don't have a hell. In fact, their languages contain no words for evil, sin, or sinner as we understand them. Now, these early beliefs indicate a universal understanding of the survival of bodily death, but the picture is not of a life that ends, then starts again in some spirit form, but of a life that continues very consistently with our current one. Still, there's a view that the afterlife is indeed a better place, where danger, pain, and hunger are at a loss, and loss are at a minimum, or don't exist at all. There is the concept of people having different parts that may be in different worlds at the same time with different roles to play. These are the most ancient human beliefs. Okay, and we have a caller. Welcome to WOON and Behind the Paranormal. Hi, Paul. This is your cousin Rick. How are you? Oh, Rick, how are you? Rick uh, Rick Eno, uh, no coincidence, he's a relative. He's our show reporter from uh, Northern California. So uh, what's on your mind today, Rick? Are you thinking about eternal life? I am thinking about eternal life, and um, I have a question that I'm trying to sort through, um, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but I know you'd be able to explain it. Um, in 1918, there was a, uh, a, a squadron, and I believe it's called Goddard Squadron, about a photograph was taken, and there seems to be a ghost appearance in the background of someone that had died two days before. And... My question is around just that. When you have ghosts showing up in these photos um, in the background, if, if that in fact what it is, it, I mean, there's a lot of support for it. Um, what exactly is that, and and how does it manifest itself? I mean, how, why does the lens capture it, and and you know, other people miss it uh, live? What what is that? Okay, that's a, that's an interesting question, and it's relevant to our subject. If you know there are ghosts, and why do they show up on film? Uh, well, again, we, we don't think they're ghosts as such. We think that there are uh, some some form of life from a parallel reality, or even from our own reality, that we just can't see. Uh, we can only see a certain spectrum of light. Uh, film uh, in the early because when I started out in this in 1970, there weren't any digital cameras, and I started out working with film. And I did intelligence photography in the military, and I learned a few things there. And uh, there may be some things that you have to eliminate first. The last thing you, w- you will decide is that this is a, a, an abnormal, an anomaly, or an extra in a film, as it's sometimes called. Uh, there were, with the films, there would be light leaks sometimes that would ma- make it look like bright uh, balls of light and things of this kind. And all it was was just uh, something wrong with the, with the camera and the light got in. Uh, on the uh, more serious side, when it comes to uh, anything paranormal, uh, we would always look for contiguous phenomena. In other words, if, 
if we took a photo, which we have many times, uh, and uh, gotten something in it that cannot be identified, again, with film, we would take it to a lab associated with Kodak, and they would say, well, this is not a reflection, or that this is not... Um, uh, you know, and anything that, that really should be there, and, and uh, they can't. Nobody can say it is a ghost, but uh, in those days, they they would say what it's not, sort of an apophatic approach to what was then called psychic photography. Okay, and uh, but again, even today, we don't say, well, this is definitely this or that and the other thing, and let people decide. Now, when digital media came in, everything changed because you didn't have a negative to test. Uh, you had uh, cameras that more often than not, will interpret what they see. So if there's dust in the air, it, it may become uh, an orb, as it's commonly called. Uh, I know for a fact that uh, very often insects uh, will show up as orbs, especially when you're taking flash photography at night. Uh, they will show up as uh, what are commonly known as skyfish, because they're just moving. It depends on the, on the speed and all this sort of thing. Uh, when you do have the few that might actually be something paranormal, uh, I think that they appear as they do, which is very often glowing or mysterious or ghostly, if you want to use the term. Uh, what, what The reason for that is that they will uh, be seen, they, they might look just like you or me, they probably do. And if our interpretation is correct, you're looking through a plasma-charged boundary into literally another world. And what you're going to see is, you know, ghostly sorts of stuff that uh, uh, would scare anybody if they didn't know really what it was. This is why we very often run into, quote unquote, ghosts in cases who are afraid of us because they think we're ghosts haunting them. I've actually had that happen where they're seeing us as we see them through this boundary and they think that we're ghosts. So, I mean, I think that that's what the camera can pick up because it can see more than our eyes can. Again, uh, I'm very suspicious of all these photos, and I really like to put them through their paces before I see them. Uh, so I think that you're seeing, and, and, and now we're getting into the concept of eternal life as just timelessness. If you're existing in all these different forms, in all these different versions, in many worlds where to us it might be the past or us even the future, how can you die? Even your body, because there are so many different forms of you. So, so this may be photographic evidence of that, if you want to. If you want to say that, I don't know if that answers so, your question. Well, no, it, it's curious because two days before he died, he walked into a propeller and basically took his head off. But they were scheduled to have a photograph two days later, and it's almost like he he showed up in the photograph. Yeah. If I'm listening to what you're saying, that appointment was good in other dimensions. And basically, he's there for the photograph. Well, again, if he were just a spirit, this is what made me suspicious. Why would he have clothes on? Why why would he look like he has a body? And there are certain schools of thought in spiritualism that will say, well, you've got a spirit world where everything's the same, only it's spirit. But uh, to me, that that just that is pretty lame, you know. Uh, And I think that itself comes from Plato's. If anybody studied philosophy besides me, Plato out there who had his theory of his, his notion of ideals and he did a, um, a sort of a thought experiment based on a cave in which everything that exists in the material world has a counterpart uh, that is an ideal. Okay. And uh, what we see in the, in the physical world is only a reflection or reflections of that or those ideals. So I think that's where our dualism comes in of thought about you know there's got to be matter and spirit two different things and we don't think that's that's necessarily true so uh we're getting into some deep deeper stuff here but i think that, yeah. again the photos indicate that something is going on and so it's either the multiverse or it's the spirit world so, I mean, so our, our particular interpretation is that it's definitely the multiverse you're seeing yeah. him in a world where he never died and you're seeing yourselves in a world where he never died. Yeah. I think I think that's how it works. Okay, that's really helpful. Thank you. Okay, very good, Rick. Thank you. Keep up the great work. Okay. Okay. Bye. So anyway, um, these ideas of different worlds at the same time and the dream time, as the uh, Aboriginal Australians uh, called it, this is all explained to me on a wooden porch outside an old store near near uh, Melbourne, Australia, on a hot summer day in 1979. 
It was February, but that's winter down there. Uh, I should say January. But uh, by a little Aboriginal elder named Mindalui. Mindalui, wonderful guy. In that conversation, which lasted nearly seven hours, was the genesis of our, our own theories about the afterlife and heaven, whereupon bodily death we transition, or as I say, translate, to lives and bodies where we're already living in nearby parallel worlds. It's all simultaneous. The Aborigines even symbolized these translations in tribal initiation ceremonies for young people and their, in their funeral rites. Not so the Sumerians. Now, they're about as far away as you can get from the Aboriginals, but they mysteriously popped onto the scene in the Middle East about 8,000 years ago or so. Uh, they believed that physical death sent the unfortunate person's spirit, and this included saints and sinners alike, to a dreary place that roughly translates the house of dust, where they would literally eat dust for a year and then fade into oblivion. How cheerful is that? The only vague ray of hope was their belief that somebody would eventually come up with a ritual to cure death. It almost sounds like us with our um, blind faith in science. Now, as for the Egyptians... You know, we look around, we see all those tombs and mummies and think, geez, these people were obsessed with death. Well, actually, they were obsessed with life. And we always talk about the, uh, the, the multiverse on the show, and we just did. Uh, the idea from quantum physics, again, that there are many parallel worlds with different versions of ourselves who can bleed through to our own consciousness, even in photography, as Rick uh, pointed out just now when he called in. This is the same thing or very close to what primal humans appear to have believed. Now, with the Egyptian idea of an afterlife, and they weren't really primal humans, they're kind of closer to us temporally than certainly the aboriginals or some of the other uh, peoples, uh, they have a, uh idea of the multiverse sort of as a consistent, continuing, and unified life, not physical life stopping and spiritual life beginning, but a continuous life. In most cases, the afterlife was just really an enhanced version of our earthly existence. The Egyptian idea of this was that the body contained three souls and that the ideal afterlife situation, or heaven as we might call it, uh, would be to reunite these three souls in the next world or worlds. This could be done if the physical body remained intact, hence the idea uh, that the... um, they would have to preserve the body as, as, as best they could. And they didn't do this with everybody. I mean, the richer you were, the better mummy you ended up, I guess. But the idea that we have a physical body in the next parallel world that maybe slipped by them, but they, they tried their best. Uh, the desire to des- preserve the physical body resulted in the practice of mummification and filling graves and tombs with food and other earthly objects, including toys and games. Isn't that strange? I, I, every time I go to a wake, not every time, but frequently... And when there still are wakes, they'll, people will put stuff in the coffin, you know, golf balls or having books or pictures. And you know, I get that, but I'm thinking, wow, how Egyptian this is. It's kind of a thing with us, I guess. But um, anyway, there it is. So how much do these ancient religions influence each other? I mean, I don't think the Egyptians influenced the aboriginals, although you never know. Uh, but generally, there was a lot of influence. And one of the best examples uh, when it comes to afterlife beliefs uh, were, do we, oh, anyway, afterlife beliefs uh, were seen in the Middle East uh, between the Greeks, Romans, Jews, Christians, and Muslims, and everybody else that was there. And it has uh, more influence on today's popular concepts of the afterlife in heaven than any other religion. It's a religion most people never heard of, Zoroastrianism. And it arose in Persia, that's Iran today, in the 6th century B.C., thanks to the the prophet Zoroaster. Here we see the first really clear and dogmatic teachings about a good God and a bad God, and uh, they're in a cosmic struggle where good eventually wins, and uh, there we have God and Satan in today's popular mind. So Zoroastrianism, which uh, preceded similarly-oriented Manichaeism by many centuries, also has clear ideas about the immortality of the soul, angels and demons, as they are popularly understood today, eternal joy for the good and eternal punishment for the wicked, and even the idea of saviors. That seems to be where most of these ideas started. They bled off into particularly Christianity. The Muslim conquest of the 7th century pretty much wiped out the Zoroastrians, and there are only about 10,000 left today, but that they didn't decline before their ideas spread far and wide. Which brings us to the big three, the people of the book. Those are the Jews, 
the Christians, and the Muslims. But first of all, why don't we take our bottom-of-the-hour break here, and uh, you're listening to Behind the Paranormal, uh, just with Paul Eno today, on WOON 1240 AM and 99.5 FM in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. We're talking about eternal life, so stick around. We'll be right back. The night is alive. Join us and take a walk on the weird side when you tune in to The Kingdom of Nye, hosted by Heather Wade, the finest in late-night talk. Listen live free weeknights starting at 9 p.m. Pacific Time at thekingdomofnye.com, talkstreamlive.com, and the Paranormal Radio app. Want to take a ride? Welcome back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. It's WOON 1240 AM and 99.5 FM in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. And we're talking about eternal life today. And I'm, I'm talking about apparently by myself, except for a caller or two. Uh, and Ben is unable to be with us today because of our schedule change. However, he'll be back next week. So what do the Jewish people believe about an afterlife or eternal life? Well, Judaism is unusual, and I actually I find it kind of refreshing among religions because it's far more concerned with how to live life correctly here and now than it is about what comes afterward. Matter of fact, a Jewish friend once told me, it's easy to die, it's living that's difficult. And I think that's really, really true. The Talmud and the Torah have very little to say about anything but this life. In fact, there's no official Jewish teaching that we know of, at least, uh, about the afterlife. There are plenty of opinions and debates. Uh, we've even had a number of Jewish listeners express enthusiasm for our multiverse ideas on the whole matter. The most common afterlife word used in the Hebrew Bible is Sheol, often mistranslated into English as hell, uh, with all its Zoroastrian connotations. Uh, in fact, there is no official concept of eternal punishment in Judaism. Sheol simply means the grave, which in turn means a place of waiting presumably for the promised Messiah. Since about 200 B.C., though, the idea of an eternal reward or heaven has become a little more popular in some segments of Judaism. There was a great scholar, a guy named Hillel, uh, who preceded Jesus by about 65 years and was a tremendous influence on him. He's still considered one of the main go-to guys on Jewish thought, and people still read his writings, including me. Hillel said, in so many words, the afterlife, worry about it when you get there. I like that. So the Christian ideas are a lot more complicated. Now, Christians have always claimed to be direct religious descendants of the Jews. I don't think that's quite accurate. Anyway, the earliest Christians, or those in the Jesus movement, as most modern scholars like to call it, were Jews who never considered themselves anything else. Some non-Jews, known as Gentiles, decided to follow Jesus in the very beginning too. But as far as is known, most converted to Judaism before they did that. And for the most part, everybody continued to follow the, the, the Jewish law and to attend temples uh, faithfully if they lived in or near Jerusalem or the local synagogue or if they lived somewhere else. They fervently believed in the resurrection of Jesus, of course, the, these new Jesus movement members are Christians. Uh, and they believed in that in some form or other. Uh, some of them said they had seen Jesus with their own eyes during that mysterious 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension. But they still considered Jesus another great Jewish teacher like Hillel, and a king, the king, who had taken Judaism to a whole new level, and they believed he would return forthwith to establish the kingdom of God, whatever that might be. Now, few people realize that today, as time went by, there were upwards of 15 different flavors of early Christianity. Some believed Jesus was a spirit, others that he was an ordinary, brilliant, holy guy. Others said he was God's adopted son. Still others believed in reincarnation. Jesus was the reincarnation of Moses or Elijah. Others thought that marriage and family should end right then and there so people could retire to the desert and wait for the second coming of Jesus. Some people actually did that. So on and so on. As far as we know, it didn't occur to anyone that Jesus had come to found an entirely new religion. The kingdom of God was to be perfectly physical, not something like the afterlife or heaven. Then along came someone who changed everything, Paul of Tarsus, otherwise known as St. Paul. And here's where we need some serious explanation to understand how Christian ideas about heaven or the afterlife or eternal life developed. And I don't know if we're going to actually have time to get into that. But uh, let's just say it was very, very complicated. And Paul like literally took over Christianity. 
Uh, as a matter of fact, you know, when he went to Jerusalem to meet with the uh, the uh, actual original apostles, I said, "Who the heck is this guy?" Because his ideas were very, very un-Jewish. The whole idea of the Messiah as a god or a divine figure or the son of literal son of God was totally, wildly un-Jewish. Uh, so a lot of Jews actually today they won't say this because they're too nice. But uh, when I studied Hebrew, uh, the rabbi, one of the rabbis I studied with said, well, Christianity is really a kind of a pagan religion. And uh, the ideas of the afterlife are very different from those of Judaism, as, as we've pretty much seen. But as the time went by and Jesus didn't return, at least not in the dramatic form of the second coming, the whole idea of the kingdom of God became spiritualized, not instead of being physical. And the popular idea developed that you had to die to achieve it. But there was also the idea of a literal recreation of the earth, a physical kingdom of God that would be available to all people, living or dead, who passed muster at the last judgment after the second coming of Jesus. And uh, it, that's still present in there. It's not talked about or preached about a lot, but that's in there. Uh, so what is the afterlife for Christians? Uh, the fact that there's almost as many ideas about heaven as there are Christian denominations, and almost as many popular ideas about heaven as there are Christians. Uh, the Bible is somewhat ambiguous on the details, so those about heaven can be extremely co- uh, complex. The Christian churches of the East, the Orthodox, are generally known by their various national and regional churches, but uh, they are continuously existing Christian groups, and they have some of the earliest ideas uh, still preserved. Um, the basic Orthodox idea of heaven demonstrates, again, the earliest spiritualization of the whole concept, but it still rings... Uh, with the more ancient concept of the continuing physical life. As a matter of fact, if you look back at the earliest parts of the Christian church, the Nicaea, Council of Nicaea in 325 B.C., when the Bible, A.D., I should say, when the Bible was put together and when different um, things that were thought of as heresies were cleared up, they were very, very careful to make the, the whatever they put in the Bible very physical. Jesus was not a spirit. Uh, the body was to be saved along with the soul. Again, whatever the soul may be. And so th- this physical nature is still very, very prominent in uh, the actual Christian doctrines, even if people really don't see it that way. Uh, this is supposed to be, uh, again, the uh, life in Christ is the beginning of heaven or eternal life. It starts on earth during your life. It's supposed to grow and deepens as you learn and experience God. Uh, this is supposed to happen internally and within the Christian community. It continues past bodily death, an event that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of difference, uh, except as a lesson in humility and knowing your place. So again, here's the physical concept of eternal life, uh, and again, proceeding right through death, which again doesn't seem to mean much, and there you go. But there is this uh, sort of Zoroastrianized, Zoroastrianized idea of hell, and uh, that kind of has always bothered me. We had a show... It is the second most popular show we've ever broadcast in over 12 years. And that was show 821, December 8th, 2019. You can go into the podcast platforms. You can find it there. And that was a show, uh, Will Satan Be Saved? With uh, Orthodox theologian Dr. David Bentley Hart. We talked about an old argument in the Christian church that how could God be completely just uh, if people are sentenced to eternal damnation eternally? Will at some point everything be saved in order to make everything symmetrical and to make God really seem like all just and all loving? And there was a great opinion at the time that he would. God would save everyone eventually. And we had a fascinating discussion on that with him. So I refer you to that show, uh, December 8th, 2019. And you can also even get the video of it here at uh, WON, uh, ONWorldwide.com and look for the uh, ON TV On Demand and uh, you can... A good way to do it, if you want to find that, is to uh, look for the most most viewed shows, and it just the, it's kind of a short way down the list, and you'll see that. So you might find it interesting. So uh, the Orthodox are a little different from the Roman Catholics and Protestants, who generally believe in the same pattern: life in Christ, bodily death, bodily resurrection. But they tend to have far more complex, sometimes conflicting official teachings on that. Um, especially because the Roman Catholics were deeply influenced by scholasticism and the Protestants were deeply influenced by the Roman Catholics, even though they don't like to admit it. So the whole idea of um, of going to heaven, getting some kind of reward, is 
very prominent in, in the Western Christian thinking. That's almost like God is some kind of vending machine. What's the minimum I have to do to get to eternal life, right? But uh, as we delve further into any Christian concept, let's give uh, it all some context by looking at Hindu, Buddhist, and Muslim ideas about heaven. Now, Hindu is a European term. It's a large group of religions in India. They don't all necessarily share the same doctrines. Uh, but uh, it's polytheistic, recognizing a number of gods. Uh, they talk about karma, the universal law that good attracts good and bad attracts bad. I happen to believe that. Uh, the belief that everything you do or think has consequences because of karma is very prominent in that. So it can affect you in this life or in another. There is a concept of, of parallel lives being lived a la the multiverse. Uh, Hindus, Hindus also believe in reincarnation as do New Agers and most other people in pop Western culture today. But Hindus consider this constant cycle of death and rebirth as a prison to be escaped from. So eternal life is pretty active uh, for those folks. Uh, it's not some kind of reprieve where your precious selves don't go poof. It's something to be escaped from, reincarnation. So the Hindu goal, however, is nirvana. Uh, the better the karma you acquire during your life, the better the life you will be reincarnated into later. Eventually, you can escape the whole thing. And you can reach enlightenment or godhood even through nirvana. It's actually quite compatible with concepts of the multiverse. Now moving on to Buddhism, uh, it's, that started in India in 6th century BC, but it now is, India is largely Hindu and Buddhism is predominant in one form or another in East Asia. Interestingly, Buddha, Buddhism does not believe in a supreme god at all. Buddha is not a god. Buddha is an enlightened guy who was one of the, the most brilliant teachers of it. And uh, I've been told that there is a statue of Abraham Lincoln in a temple in Japan as an enlightened Buddha. Now, he doesn't have his own temple, but he's, you know, he's in there with the other Buddhists. <laughs> there you have it. So anybody can become a Buddha. That's, that's the whole idea. Uh, so anyway, uh, like Hinduism, Buddhism has many and varied branches and shares some basic ideas. Uh, but again, uh, the idea of attaining enlightenment, which I suppose it is a form of eternal life, is to be achieved by something that is very, very foreign to any of us, the complete annihilation of the self. Now, we're always going on and on about the show that, 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 on the show here that the spirituality that's often preached today is very self-centered. And the multiverse is full of paradoxes. You lose yourself in order to find yourself. Jesus even talked like this in some ways, and so did many other spiritual leaders. So we think the Buddhists are onto something here. And uh, this may have something to do with the idea of eternal life as something very different from what you and I might generally be raised to think of it as. Now the Muslims, uh, everybody talks about Islam, but uh, very few people understand it. Uh, like Christians and Jews, Muslims believe in one God. Allah is simply Arabic for God. Islam was founded in the early years of the 7th century A.D. by Muhammad, uh, and um, he uh, had, was, had deep piety, and he wanted to meditate and pray, and that's why he went to Mecca, and um, he uh, did battles with uh, demons and evil jinns, what we would call parasites. Uh, later, Muhammad believed he was approached by the angel Gabriel, or Jibril, as it's in, it is in Arabic, who gave him the recitations that became the Quran. Uh, now, the Muslim belief about heaven or jhana is pretty consistent, and it's very similar to the modern pop concepts of heaven, in my opinion. It's the only religion whose official ideas are very similar to what the actual Joe and Jane on the street believe in our current modern world. The Muslim idea goes back to more ancient concepts of heaven as a very physical place. Again, here we have the physical part, uh, but it has very modern ideas about immediate gratification, Muslim texts describe the immortal life of the soul in heaven as happy, with no negative emotions or effects. In heaven, people wear expensive clothes, attend sumptuous banquets, and recline on couches inlaid with gold or precious stones. They hopefully liked uh, their, their, all their parents and wives and children, again, whom they hopefully liked in life. I, I always get a kick out of that. Oh, you see all your loved ones. What if you didn't like the loved one? You know, have to stuck with them or what? But anyway, anyway, everybody gets their own palace built by angels out of solid gold. Not bad. Nevertheless, there's a clear belief in a general resurrection and a general judgment like the Christians have. Muslims get to heaven if their good deeds outweigh their sins. Now, the Protestants don't believe that. All you have to do is believe in Jesus and you're saved. 
Uh, but anyway, if it's the other way around, Muslims go to hell. About the more good deeds the Muslim has to his credit, the higher the level of heaven he ends up in. Uh, some Muslim scholars have said that the lowest level of heaven is 100 times better than the greatest life on earth. So you get the picture. So what is heaven? I better hurry up because we're almost out of time. Now we come to what most people really believe about eternal life, at least the heavenly version of it. For many years, I've gathered information about this in various religions, kind of an informal survey I've done in the seminary and after I got out of it. But I find a real disconnect between what people actually believe and what their religions actually teach. Uh, the fact that most people in Western society today believe what they want to believe anyway about heaven and everything else, regardless of their religions. Most people, more people than ever, I guess, seem, seem to take spirituality seriously, and that's great. More people are voluntarily switching religions now than at any point in modern history, and that means at least that they're thinking. So nevertheless, the majority of workaday people still belong to a given religion as their parents did, and they have the same beliefs about uh, eternal life. Uh, the average uh, person's ideas about the eternal strike me as almost cartoonish or caricature of, of what you might believe. Uh, there's little or no conception of a general resurrection or the physical renewal of the earth, as is often taught officially. You die, and your soul goes to heaven, which is somewhere in the sky, or hell, which is somewhere underground. If you're a Roman Catholic, maybe you go to purgatory for a while, which could be anywhere. As a young seminary student in the 1970s, I believed in purgatory as a literal state, as I said uh, in our pre-show before 3 o'clock today. And my first ghost investigations were based on this idea that these were souls in purgatory. And uh, I found immediately that that was not correct. But there is a belief that heaven and hell are physical places, or at least they're very physical characteristics. So how do you get to heaven? Well, many people, as I say, seem to regard God as like this vending machine. If you go to the mosque on Friday, the temple on Saturday, or the church on Sunday, things will go better for you in life, and you'll have a kind of insurance policy for the eternal. Now, in this group, there are authors, uh, I, haven't, I mean, at least I've encountered people who literally think that God is an old man with a white beard, rather like a celestial Santa Claus. They might not go to church or synagogue or whatever, but they contribute money, and they assume that God will bless that. The minimalist attitude is everywhere here. What's the least I have to do to pass muster to get into heaven? Now, the person on the street concept of heaven itself is very Muslim. So I'm going to skip forward a little bit in our script uh, to what we, our opinion might be. All right. Now, what we ourselves believe, we being Ben and myself, uh, an experience in paranormal research has taught us, we think, uh, leads directly to an awareness of the multiverse and the infinite forms of life and energy within it. Just about the only thing that can't happen in the multiverse is us dying in any meaningful sense. Just as we said, there are so many versions of us, physical, almost all of them, how can you die? Our lives are so vast, stretching across these endless worlds and forms, there can be no such thing as death. That's our opinion. Uh, the great astrophysicist Sir Fred Hoyle suspected that life is not the, the exception in the universe of the multiverse, but the rule. It's everywhere and everywhere. But here's the thing. Because all possible forms of reality exist, all possible outcomes and forms of heaven must too. So by that measure, every belief about heaven that we've discussed here is true, somewhere or somewhere. It might be couched in complex doctrine, lost in cultural misunderstandings, and even seem like a Disney movie, but our golf enthusiast, and oh, I didn't mention her, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I went to the funeral of a... Um, of a, of a lady who's a, the wife of a dear friend of mine in uh, East Providence, Rhode Island, some years ago, Roman Catholic ceremony. The priest, I almost had my mouth up, stood up and talked about how the lady was a golf enthusiast and she was uh, uh, playing golf without having to pay greens fees and eating all the snacks and chocolate and cake and stuff that she liked at the uh, clubhouse without getting fat. And he went on and on and on. So he shook everybody's hand as we were leaving the church at the end. And I said, Father, that is the weirdest eschatology I've ever heard. Now, eschatology is a theological term about the last things and death and what happens at the end. And he stared at me because they don't expect you to have a theological education and to be able to say words like eschatology. So that was pretty strange. But, but if you look at our multiverse ideas, he may have been right. At some point, she may have consciousness of a life which, that she's already living in a parallel world where she is eating 
all the stuff she wants without getting fat, and the laws of physics are such that you don't have to pay greens fees. So I, I caught myself later on and said, this may be true if, if our ideas are, are correct. So again, it all depends how you define eternal life, how you define heaven. The real key is, apparently, it's up to you. We believe truly that you make your own bed in the multiverse. You share the life of God, whatever you believe God is, and in the end, you judge yourself. The greatest sermon I ever heard was less than a minute long. And I always about if I ever made it to the priesthood, I'd never give a sermon more than a minute long. But this monk stood up and he said, everybody expected a long sermon. He said, he made the sign of the cross. He said, do not judge others because in doing so, you judge yourself. That was it. That was the whole sermon. I remember every word and everybody in the place did. And it taught us more than all the ramblings any other priest or minister or whoever could, could give. So again, you make your own bed. And I think that the place, time, and state of your conscious mind, uh, what it realizes after you use up where you are now, where you, when you translate, takes the path of least resistance, like everything else in nature. And if you're a selfish jerk with no clue about uh, the, the unity of all things and uh, that the fact that you are other people, you'll continue to be a selfish jerk. And if you're kind of re- have a rebirth like the Buddhists and Hindus are talking about, uh, you just, I think, will, if you don't have a rebirth, you'll have stagnation, boredom, death. If you're a predator who lives off the weak, uh, you will, and if you're ferociously egocentric, there are backward steps in the multiverse too. Worlds of endless aloneness. I've seen them in research. So wherever you're going to go, it's already there and you're already living. You're not just seeing it yet. That's that's pretty much all it is because we're not quite at the point in a revolution where we can deal with all this. So anyway, each of us is going through bodily death at one or another place in the multiverse at every moment. It's the, it's the, the root experience of our existence, I think. Why? Boredom. We don't handle boredom. That's the real death for us. Things are constantly changing. And we think to constantly move, it's not a move, you know, the move of consciousness from one world to another, one life to another, is exactly what keeps us alive. So again, we're just not built for boredom. So like uh, our whole biosphere, we're creatures created not only to create, but to change. Nothing is more deadly to us sometimes than that sameness. Which, I, which is why I think that, that very often the Christian concepts of heaven would just be totally boring and deadly. Our minds grow dull. Excitement dies, etc., etc. So the experience of bodily death is the signature of that change. And I think that's why we call it translation and we keep changing. Hopefully we don't continue to be selfish jerks. We get better. So that's essentially our view. Okay, now we had to skip a lot, and we thank everybody, and there are a couple of questions we didn't get to, but I think we're uh, coming down to the wire here. We better get to our announcements. So as we've been announcing on recent shows, the 2020 Exeter UFO Festival on Labor Day weekend has been canceled, but the 55th anniversary of the incident at Exeter, uh, New Hampshire, will not go unsung on the show here. On September 6th, the day, the day we would have broadcast from the historic Exeter Town Hall with a panel of speakers and a live audience for the fifth year in a row, we'll offer a broadcast of last year's panel show from there. On the panel were Kathleen Martin, Peter Robbins, Mac Maloney, Mike Stevens, and many other luminaries in the UFO field. The following week, September 13th, we'll bring you a very special guest, retired FBI agent Clinton Rand, who was a Hampton, New Hampshire police officer, uh, sergeant, I should say, in September 1965, was on duty at the police department desk during the incident at Exeter, which involved UFO encounters by several of his officers. Now, uh, on the day after what would have been the Exeter UFO Festival, September 7th, Labor Day in the United States, uh, Ben and I will be on the Travel Channel as part of a debut of The Devil's Road, The True Story of Ed and Lorraine Warren, first in a new series of two-hour documentaries, America's True Horror Stories. Uh, anyway, I, uh, I'm in it as someone who worked with the Warrens, and Ben is there to represent the new generation of researchers. That will be on the Travel Channel, 9 p.m. Eastern, Monday, September 7th. And uh, we have high hopes that we'll be back at the Greater New England UFO Conference in Lemonster in October, and uh, stay tuned for that. It will take place in one form or another. Uh, the Western Connecticut UFO Conference uh, in um, Connecticut, of course, uh, Torrington, I should say uh, Danbury, uh, will indeed uh, take place this year, yeah, again, in one form or another, so stay tuned literally on that one. 
Uh, we already have word that the New England Parafest will take place on April 10th and 11th of 2021 in Kittery, Maine, and that we will do a live broadcast from this time, hopefully again, if it can take place physically, uh, with the panel of the speakers on September the 11th. More information will be forthcoming. So please uh, check out our books along with those of our other co-hosts uh, at our show website, BehindTheParanormal.com, where you'll also find more about the show, our many cases over the years, our public appearances and how to book us, along with some of our 850 uh, free recorded shows from our 12-plus years on the air, including our four-and-a-half-year uh, run on CBS radio, along with special shows and podcasts. <coughs> uh, there are links to several charities we've adopted on the show, including USA Cares, Canadian Veterans Advocacy, Helping Haiti's Orphans, Youth Mentoring Connection in Los Angeles, and several others uh, whose uh, administrators we know. So please check those out. So next week, uh, we have, it's August 16th. Next week, uh, we welcome UFO author and experiencer Sev Talk to talk about experiencing the multiverse firsthand. I think that's going to be a really interesting show. Uh, Seb is a prominent speaker at a number of UFO conventions and has taken it beyond that uh, into some uh, multiverse theory that would be um, very interesting, we think, for uh, our guests. Uh, So uh, next week, Ben will be back with us. Again, he apologized for not being with us, sends his greetings to everybody today. And uh, he will uh, be back with us again next week. Uh, We leave you today with an apt thought from the Austrian-British philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein. Death is not an event in life. We do not live to experience death. If we take eternity to mean not infinite temporal duration, but timelessness, then eternal life belongs to those who live in the present. I'm Paul Eno, and thanks again to our uh, station manager and producer today, Dave Richards. We'll see you next week behind the paranormal. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.